This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. I want to read you uh, a poem. A friend of mine who was, um, uh, I lived with him many, many years ago when I was just put post-student, so it is many years ago, and he uh, was a guy called Simon Reynolds, uh, lived in Bath with him, shared a house, and he went to uh, apartheid South Africa and uh, felt t- to be involved in like working in the townships in apartheid South Africa as a white guy, obviously that was very dangerous, and um, what, what, we, what happened to him is that he was killed in a road accident. The truck that he was driving to bring loads of resources to the uh, township turned over and he was crushed. And it's interesting, his parents, who, who I knew quite well, had um, went through his, his, his belongings and, and found this poem. It's, I don't know, nobody knows quite who wrote it, uh, but it's, it helps us get into what we're talking about. The poem's called Risk. It says, to laugh is to risk appearing the fool. To weep is to risk being called sentimental. To reach out to another is to risk involvement. To expose feelings is to risk showing your true self. To place your ideas and your dreams before the crowd is to risk their ridicule. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk despair. To try is to risk failure. But risks must be taken because the greatest risk in life is to risk nothing. The person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, is nothing and becomes nothing. Uh, He may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he cannot learn and feel and change and grow and love and live. Changed by his certainties, he is a slave. He's forfeited his freedom. Only the person who risks is truly free. And there's a little bit of kind of psychobabble mumbo-jumbo in there, but actually there's some really interesting stuff about actually you need to take some bold steps. So, Paul, you were on the money, actually, that, that, you know, I'm going to talk about taking bold steps today, about risking and taking bold steps. Uh, And I want us to kind of get to that point where we think, actually, it's very important that we don't just sit in ease and comfort, as we talked about last week, but actually that we step out and take big risks. And that's not talking about, I'm not talking about risks on the stock market or risks with this or that, you know, or throwing yourself off buildings, although that may be your thing that you, you know, there's nothing wrong with either of those. But we're talking about risks for a great cause. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, daring greatly in parenting and risk for a great cause. You know, it's not the person, the critic that counts, but the one who's in the arena, says Roosevelt. And and I want to talk about risking. And what happened, we find here in Nehemiah that actually he takes a big risk. So let's just read five or six verses. Uh, You'll notice I've just got the PowerPoint slide, so I could say anything this morning. Uh, So hopefully I won't. But anyway, 
Okay, so let me just uh, read from Nehemiah, start of chapter 1, end of chapter 1, and then into chapter 2. It says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he adds, as almost an afterthought, I was the cupbearer to the king. In the month of April, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it, to his, gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Can this be nothing but the sadness of heart? I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been burned with fire? The king said to me, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, uh, city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked him, how long will the journey take? And when will you get back? It pleases the king to send me. So I set a time. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so they may provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And I have a letter to Asaph, king of the royal park, that will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because of, the great, because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Lord, we just pray as we look at this passage where Nehemiah quite literally sticks his neck out, quite literally takes this huge risk with his life because there's something more important to him than just having the good job and the comfy life. And Lord, I just pray that you'd get hold of us again and stir us up again. Lord, I, I know it. I know the, the, the nice, soft, comfortable life of Middle England. But Lord, I pray that we would not be those that risk nothing and achieve nothing, that believe nothing and go for nothing. Lord, I pray you'd help us to take those bold steps this morning and through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so clearly, um, <clears throat> you've got to understand that Artaxerxes was probably a nutter. It's certainly his great, his grandfather, Xerxes of 300 fame, was a nutter. And it's obviously, if you were the cupbearer to the king, it was kind of a job for life. But your life may have been really quite short if you weren't very good at it. Because your job obviously was to make sure that the king's wine and food wasn't poisoned. Now, obviously, we're talking about that was the, uh, if you were going to kill the king, that was the way you were going to do it these days. There was no kind of handguns, there was no sort of suicide vests. You know, if you were going to take the king down, you're most likely to poison his food. So, the, so uh, Nehemiah's job was to taste the food and make sure it wasn't poisoned. And so, uh, that he's this cupbearer to this, I would say, slightly crazy guy, potentially, if he's anything like his, his, his grandfather. And he's been praying. He's been praying for a hundred days for a moment. And we talked about in God's economy, a hundred days prayer for one moment is about the way it goes. Where normally we have a hundred days of worry for one, hopefully one moment of prayer. But he gets it right. He says, right, I'm going to pray. And he finishes his prayer, or his prayers over a hundred days, with these, these words. Give your servant, that's him, success today 
by granting him favour in the presence of this man. There is a, comes a time where he actually today means you've got to do something. The Bible's full of stuff about today. It says today's the day of salvation. And today, if you hear his voice. And it's saying about today. Sometimes there comes a day we can't put it off to tomorrow. Uh, my kids are out so I can be rude about Jotham. But he's doing exams at the moment. And I always say to him, when are you revising? And it's always this afternoon or tomorrow, or the day after. And there's, there's a time, and you know as a parent, where actually today you need to do something. You need to act today. We need to, to respond today. And this is, this is Nehemiah's today. It's like, now I'm going to go for it. Now I'm going to act. So it's great to pray, but actually, why if we pray and don't believe we're going to act, I'm, I'm probably all over, already off my notes, but if we pray and we don't believe we're going to act, then, then what are we praying about? Because actually, usually, God asks us, if we pray about stuff, yes, sometimes God intervenes in, in, in kind of healing sickness and stuff like that. Absolutely, I've seen that. But actually, some, a lot of the times when we pray, God asks us to be the answer. You know, if you pray for somebody who's lonely in the church, God is probably going to say, well, why don't you go visit them? And so it's important that we understand that there's a day where it's called today, where we need to act. And he says, today, grant me favor in the presence of this man. It's interesting he calls him this man. He's the most powerful man in the world. So he's not, oh, grant me, grant me a favor in the presence of this mighty king. In fact, it's interesting. If you see the um, queen doing the investitures, you know, knighthoods and OBEs and stuff, what, the, the, what she commented one day, she said that actually everybody feels intimidated. She just can feel it. She says, everybody feels intimidated. She's not, and she's very nice and gracious. Uh, and yet, when you meet her, you feel intimidated. You know, I'm not a natural royalist, forgive me, but I'm sure that when she came, at, yes, I'm not going to say, well, I don't agree with this. You know, I really don't agree with this kind of way. You know, I'm going to, yes, because there's an intimidation. But imagine you put that to some kind of psychopathic dictator who's wiped out uh, kind of half, of half of the Near East. And you just say, well, it's just him. It's just a him. Because actually, I believe that when you've looked into the face of God, you don't fear men. One of the reasons we don't act is because we fear people. We fear what people say to us. We're completely worried about what people will say to us. We think, well, if I do something bold, what will they say? If I say to my friend at work, you know, I'm a Christian, what will they say? Oh, I better not. And, and we can be like that. We, somebody can say something outrageous and we'll keep quiet. I mean, I love my daughter, Damaris, that she actually, if people do outrageous behavior at school, she's got a great, great bunch of friends. But if they do something outrageous, she always says, we don't behave like that in our friendship group. And she's brave enough to kind of say something. I mean, I, I think, wow, it's amazing. I don't know where she's got that bullshiness from. We'll just work that one. But, you know, she's amazing. She just says, look, we don't do that. Because she's not scared. She's not scared of what people will say. Now, she's obviously worried about what people say, about what she's wearing and stuff, but that's another story. But she's brave, and she's not scared of what people think. And we're so easily scared. But I believe that when you've got God in perspective, then we're not so scared of people. But actually, Nehemiah's job is probably, uh, most of the time, quite boring. It has this element of risk, doesn't it? It has this element of, we better do, I'm going to do something, uh, and I could die today. But I think that, I, I know people who've got really risky jobs. 
But actually, you know, they don't feel the risk. The risk kind of disappears. I don't know if Paul knows people who work in the nuclear industry. That's a kind of highly risky thing. But I guess when they're working on site, they don't think, this could go Chernobyl any moment. They don't feel the kind of sense. It's just day to day. And I think that, that Nehemiah didn't sort of feel the sense of significance about what he's doing. I think he's just doing the day to day. He's just a wine waiter. Trying to look at Long, as Long's a waiter up at the Thai restaurant if you want to go there. <laughs> Sorry, don't embarrass you. But he's, 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 he's just going through the motions of, of doing something. And actually, I've, I've observed that sometimes we can feel that, that, well, when something really amazing happens in my life, then I'm going to do, I'm going to live big and large and risky. But most of the time in our lives, we're, we're just doing the routine of life. So we kind of think, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm being a mum at home, and it's not very exciting. I, I, I don't agree with that, by the way, but, but I'm being a mum at home, and not very exciting. And then when I get this amazing thing to do with my life, then I'm going to really live big for Jesus. Or I'm a school teacher, and I'm just working through reports at the moment, and, and when, I'm, when I've got through the kind of mundane, I'm going to do something significant. But actually, I think that in the end, that, 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 that he's actually... With, He's doing the mundane and the, the stuff, but actually it's God gives him something meaningful to do. He's actually training him. I wrote here that God is not short of missions full of significance and purpose, but his church is for, short of faithful servants. Actually, you learn how to serve God in just the day-to-day. You read the Bible, the people that did great stuff just did day-to-day stuff. It wasn't that they were great and they were born great all the way through and did amazing things. They, David's keeping sheep, Moses is keeping sheep, you know, people are doing mundane stuff and then God breaks in. And in our mundane stuff, God wants to break in. And actually, sometimes that we, we, don't, we miss the moment of doing something significant because we're just not faithful in the little stuff. We just don't do the boring stuff. Now, it's interesting, he comes to the, the king and he says, uh, uh, the king says, why does your face look so sad? You've got to understand that actually the king uh, w- didn't want you to be grumpy in his presence. If you were a servant, you weren't supposed to have a miserable face on. Because he didn't want his day bummed out by some guy like, with a bad face on. He wanted everyone to say, hey, it's amazing, I'm with the king, isn't it wonderful, great, you know, Artaxerxes, we love you, party, party. He wanted it all to be, because sometimes miserable faces are about self-indulgent, aren't they? Sadness. They're about, oh, notice me. You know, he, he could kill you. If you had a sad face as the cupbearer, he could say, don't give me that sad face, take them away and kill them. That's not just a theory, that happened. I don't want him miserable. Why do I want you miserable person around? I've got enough of my own stuff. Take him away and kill him. And, and although we don't do that in society, it's interesting in society that we don't do sad faces very well, do we? We don't do sad faces really well. We don't really know what to do with our sad faces. There are some people who've got sad faces and they seem to carry their sad faces all around and they put them in the most inappropriate places. So please, if you post on Facebook that you're having a bad day, that is not the most appropriate place to post it. It's not. There is a place to go with that, but it's not like you want to walk around with a miserable face. If you've got stuff that you need to talk about, you need to find some friends, some relationships, you need to get yourself in a three, you need to talk about it. There's a place to talk about it, but actually, I thought it was interesting that actually Nehemiah knows how to control his emotions. 
He knows how to know, knows what to do with it. Uh, he, he, the poem said, to expose feelings is to risk showing your truth self. And the challenge is because some of us don't know where to go with our sad faces. We don't want to go, know what, where to go with them when we feel unhappy. That, that actually we, we put it all in the wrong places. And it's okay to feel sad and to feel low. I know some churches where actually you, you, you come every week and it's got, you've got to pretend everything's fine. You say, how's things fine? You know, it's British culture, isn't it? You know, it's Facebook culture. Everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. Yes, wonderful. And you never really get below the surface. And I've also been to churches where actually you come and it's, oh, it's terrible. Oh, life's so bad. The Lord's breaking me and I'm really suffering. And oh, you think, just, you know, and neither of those are the right place for it, really. Do you agree? We say, oh, let's be authentic. Actually, find the right place. I think Nehemiah was able to control his emotions. He wasn't uncontrollable with his sad face. I think he had a plan. I think he decided, I'm going to show my sad face for a reason. It's not that he couldn't, didn't know where to go with his sad face. I believe a guy who's prayed for 100 days shouldn't have a sad face. He goes before the king with his sad face, and the king says, why does your face look so sad when you're not sick? This can be nothing but a sickness of the heart. And then Nehemiah records, a terrible fear came over me. You've got to understand that. You've got to understand that when he decides to show his sad face, he thinks, at this point, I could be killed. Artaxerxes could say, away with him, the miserable sucker. Take him and kill him. That's what they did. And you've got to feel that that, for him to decide to show his sad face was, I think, a clear strategy. We're going to say, I need to catch the king's attention. But actually, he could have died in that moment. It was a huge risk for him to say, I am going to catch the king's attention. You don't tap the king on the shoulder and say, by the way, could I have a discussion about foreign policy with you? He shows his sad face. And in that moment, I think that the king could have killed him. You've got to understand the risk he takes. I thought as I'm preparing this, when was the last time you, when was the last time I took a risk knowing that if God doesn't turn up, you're dead? I don't think I've ever done that. But that's what the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer is. Let's go and fight the other camp and if God doesn't come, we're done. And he says, maybe God will work on our behalf. Maybe, maybe. And I think that sometimes we just don't take bold risks because we, we're so worried of the consequences. But if you look at great people, men and women who've done amazing things, they don't con- they're not concerned about their lives. They're more concerned about, I want to do something. And people lose their lives in great causes. That could have been the end of the story. Nehemiah, sad face, take him away, end of story. Even though he's prayed and he prays, God help me. He's got to believe that something's going to happen. He said, I, I just wrote here, it's foolish to attempt great deeds without prayer. But it's disingenuous to pray great prayers and not to expect to act boldly. He's prayed for 100 days and this is his today and he steps out with his sad face and thinking, now, what's going to happen? God, if you're not there, I'm done. What he says next, he says, I answered the king. His line is, is good actually. May the king live forever. Why do you think that is an interesting line? Just work that through in your head. He's the cupbearer to the king. He has got a sad face. Why does he say, king, live forever? I think he's saying, 
don't worry, king, I've not got a sad face because I've poisoned you. It's, I'm not sad because this is an end. King, live forever. It's all good. I'm not dying, you're not dying today. That's not why I'm sad. That's not something that's gone on. I've not murdered you. And then he says, why should, I, what, should my face not look so sad when the city, where my ancestors are buried, lies in ruin, its gates destroyed with fire? I think he's got a plan. He's got a plan. I'm going to show my sad face. The king is going to ask me, and I'm going to tell him. But interestingly, again, he doesn't start with a foreign policy. He says, he starts with the Persian kind of respect for the dead. He said, look, the city where my, my, my ancestors are buried is a ruin. It's kind of like that. I think he's got a plan where he's being honest and real, but he's actually trying to relate to the king on a, on a, on a relevant level. He's not just, risk doesn't mean you don't have a plan. He's not prayed for 100 days, and then when the king talks to him, he thinks, oh my word, I don't know what I want. If you read through the story, he says, give me a letter, give me timber, give me cavalry, give me this, give me that. He knows what he wants. He knows what he's after. So he's not like he's not planned. He takes a step, starts with, and he doesn't even mention the city where it is. I don't know if the king knows he's from Jerusalem. He just says, the city where my ancestors are buried. The king says, oh yeah, that's probably a shame. And then he goes on further, doesn't he? He says, I answer the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, he's saying, look, I've been a really good guy here. You know, I'm, you know, you know, I, I'm a nice guy. Uh, you know, please, please. He's, I, you've got to feel his fear. Let him send me to the city in Judah. He's getting nearer the issue, isn't he? Where my fathers are buried, so I can rebuild it. At that point, the king could have said, don't be ridiculous. Who are you? And what can you do? You're a flipping wine waiter. What can you do? There's nothing significant that you can do. Bring me some captains, some generals, some strategists. No, he's just this insignificant thing. And the king could have said, you've got nothing to offer here. What are you talking about? You're way above your pay grade here. You go and rebuild Jerusalem. Just go get the corkscrew and let's have another bottle. And I think that when we live and want to do, live for big stuff, we often feel like that, that, that we're never good enough, that we're always too small. We might think, well, he's a cupbearer to the king. But actually, in his own head, he's probably thinking, I'm too small. And often we don't do things because we think, I'm too insignificant. Maybe somebody else will do it. Maybe somebody else will live bold. Maybe somebody else will live brave because I'm just not in, important. But actually, the, the thing is here is he takes responsibility. He says, I want to go and be the solution. The poem that I read says, to place your dreams before the crowd is to risk their ridicule. Basically, what he does is he he asks the king and he says, I want to go rebuild Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand, this king, about 10, 12 years ago, has actually said Jerusalem needs to be in a mess. In Ezra chapter 4, the book before, he says, this king, Artaxerxes, has said, Jerusalem is this place of trouble and terrorism and war and so therefore I'm not going to let it be rebuilt so actually what he does is by starting with uh, his strategy I'm going to show my emotions and then talking about himself and then going through and asking him he gets to the point where he's saying to the king I want you to change your foreign policy the wine waiter's risk-taking faith and boldness changes an empire's foreign policy The person who risks nothing, does nothing. The person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, is nothing, becomes nothing. 
He may avoid suffering and sorrow. He could have suffered. But he's thinking, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not scared of suffering. Because I'm going to do something. Chained by his certainties. Those that won't risk, he's a slave. He's forfeited his freedom. Nehemiah is a slave. But actually he's not chained by the fact that he can't do anything. That he's hopeless. That he's, he can't make a difference. And I, I just think, just a couple more thoughts as we, as we finish. We need to understand, guys, even though we're small, as a church, even though we're insignificant as, as individuals, Paul writes in to Corinthians, he says, not many of you are wise, not many are rich, not many of noble birth, not many are intelligent. We want one or two went to good universities, but they're still not rich. You know, but, but you know, the, actually Paul says the church is this average bunch of people, in fact, less than average bunch of people. But actually, they said about the disciples, they're just fishermen, says they've changed the world upside down. He said, these people have been with Jesus, they're changing the city upside down, they're turning the city upside down. And that's what we want to do. And if we want to see a difference made in, in our lives, in our families, then we need to be brave about that stuff. We need to say, actually, God, I can make a difference. I can, I can believe you, I can stick my neck out believing that I've prayed that you're going to change it. And sometimes we're so, so scared, we won't even risk some, in, some com- conversation in our marriage. You know, sometimes we, we, we won't risk anybody making a comment on, on our parenting or our money. We're just so closed off. But actually, unless we open up, unless we say, God, in those areas I'm prepared to be changed, I'm prepared to be different, I'm prepared to learn and to grow and to be alive, we're never really free, we're just fearful. I finish with this poem again, different poem. I think it's Francis, Francis Drake. Now, you've got to understand that Francis Drake was an Elizabethan explorer who sailed around the world in a little boat called the Golden Hind, which I think... Does anyone know where it is? Is it in London? Yes, yeah, in London. It's south side on the, on the south bank of London, Golden Hind. You can go visit. And he's talked... He writes this poem, which I think is really kind of gets to the issue of come on. Let's do something. Disturb us, Lord, he says. In other words, it's not like, you know, disturb us, like wake them up. It's like, no, trouble us. Get under our skin like, like, like the story from Jerusalem got under Nehemiah's skin. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true. I, got some, I bought some garden furniture from Asda. This is the level of my dreams coming true. I... I I paid 200 and blah, blah pounds. And I thought that was quite a lot for garden furniture. And when it came, they delivered me a 479 pound garden set. And I felt very happy. <laughs> I thought my dreams have all come true. I can sit on my chili red cushions and drink a gin and tonic. Disturb me, Lord, when we are well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have all come true, because we've dreamed too little. We've arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. I love the metaphor, don't you? We've just navigated nicely around the coastline so we get to where we're going. We've never set out on great journeys. We've just, most shipping, and you've got to understand, in Francis Drake's day, was just around the coast, you know, a little bit along from Portsmouth to Southampton, around to London. That was where it is. To go out into the ocean, to go discover, to, to risk it, was, was crazy in those days. 
disturb us, Lord. When with the abundance of things we possess, we've lost our thirst for the waters of life. This is 17, I don't know, 16 something. Having fallen in love with ease. He could be living in Cheltenham in 2015, couldn't he? Having fallen in love with ease, we ceased to dream of eternity. We've got our perspective so squashed in and small. Now I'll just be the cupbearer and that's good. I'll just do my job and that's good. But God wants to disturb him and disturb us and say, come on, there's much more that we can do. There's much more that we can believe for. He finishes this, the, the poem with this. is Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly. To dare more boldly. To venture on wider seas where storms... Guys, you get storms. We're going to find out Nehemiah gets storms. It's not all plain sailing if you want to go across the Atlantic on a boat. It's not all plain sailing if you want to go around the world. If you want to do something, it's not plain sailing. If you want safety, stay in the harbour. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of the land we find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope and love. I feel that and I feel at the same time so pathetic. And I think, God, we want to live brave. You know, one of the, I I prayed it early because I guess I've been reading it, one of the biggest fears in Western society is meaninglessness. Purposelessness. What's the point of it all? And the thing is, we've just drifted into ease and we stop believing for a great cause. Jesus says this. It's good to get Jesus. I'm sorry he didn't get much more of a mention. I do try and get him in every week because it is about him, not about us. Jesus said this to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my follower, my disciple, must deny himself, deny themselves, Take up their cross and follow me. And this is what is amazing. It says, whoever wants to save, hang on to, grasp hold of, keep a grip on their life, is going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Too much of our lives are, and you've heard me say this before, determined by let's just hold on to what we've got so nice and comfortable. But actually, they cannot keep it. Jim Elliott, who was a, a, an American student who went to uh, uh, South America, uh, believing that God had told him to go and tell about Jesus to, to a tribe of Amazon Indians. He, was, he went there, did a Nehemiah moment. God's called me to do something significant. He, he, he sticks his neck out, and the Indians chop it off. It doesn't end in glory and majesty and wonder. Nothing gets changed, apparently. It seems wasted. It seems life wasted. A life that ended futilely. But he found in, just like my friend who had that poem, he wrote this in his journal before he died. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. You can't keep your money, your safety, your life, your ease, your small dreams, your cupbearer job. You can't keep it because it's all going to go because it's not eternal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot uh, keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what we had from Helen, isn't it? 
We had from Helen that's like, let's run the race with perseverance set before us. Let's run the race with perseverance. Yeah, let's take some bold steps. I believe that, that Helen and Paul and what they felt God said to them this morning and what I've said, God is saying to us, God first, let's take some bold steps. So the boldest step might be, um, maybe that you actually say, no, I'm going to try and live differently with a fresh perspective. I'm going to live for Jesus and his great cause. Just as I have said, that, you know, that when I'm preparing it, it always asks me the question before it asks you. So it's not like, hi, I'm living this amazing, radical, risky life. I'm just like the rest of you in that sense. I want to ask you, have you sailed too close to the shore? Have you just dotted the I's and crossed the T's and planned out your life? A-levels, university, nice job, nice house, few kids, <coughs> and off they go again, through the cycle again. And you know deep down that actually there's just a meaninglessness about it all. God's calling us in those little moments, those today moments, to say, I'm going to risk. I'm going to risk my ideas, my dreams, my faith before the people at work. I'm going to risk parenting differently. I'm going to risk living differently with my money. I don't know what it is, but what areas have you become comfy? What areas is God saying, now, now, come on. It's not the one in the crowd that matters, but it's the one in the arena. The one who's daring greatly. Lord, we pray for us. Let us dare greatly. As this nation doesn't know which way to turn, Lord, we say we believe that you are the answer. We say let your church be built and let the good news of Jesus change this nation like it's done before. Let it do it again. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.